and welcome to Matt Ricardo's London Varieties. Thank you so much for downloading the podcast. My name is Matt Ricardo, and the show you're about to listen to came live from the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club in beautiful downtown East London. Now, this is a variety show, and it seems to me that these days, whenever anyone talks about variety, they always say the same thing. They say, what killed it? Well, nothing killed it. Variety never died, it just moved venue. When the music halls closed, it went to cabaret clubs, to holiday camps, to comedy venues and pubs, to the end of piers, to piazzas and street corners, and of course, to working men's clubs just like the one this show came from. But these days, variety is truly back. And I'm not talking about Britain's Got Talent or any of those cynical, manipulative, soul-destroying shit factories. I'm talking about performers who can make your jaws drop, who can show you things you've never seen before, and who can do it before your very eyes. And that's what we had in the launch night of the show. If you weren't there, you missed out, because we had the brilliant and hilarious magician Mandy Mooden. We had the world's only human cartoon double act, Big Howard and Little Howard. We had stories from the last 30 years of street performing from some of the best exponents of that art form. But we opened the show with one of the brightest stars of the new generation of British circus and variety, Craig the Incredible Hula Boy. We had a great night, and on this podcast what you'll get is a little snatch of each of those acts, and then you get to listen to the entire interview with three of the UK's most respected street performers. Again, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. See you at the end. Several times. 
So I've said it now, that's what I'm going to try and learn <coughs> next month. Hopefully, you know, I'm going to give it a go. Either it's going to work, um, or it's not going to work. Either way, it's spectacular. Um, but for now, I believe we are ready. I'm getting thumbs up. So, uh, we have one more act before we take an interval. Um, I first saw uh, this astonishing act about five, six years ago at the Edinburgh Festival, and it blew my mind, and I became unhealthily attached to it. Um, I'm an unashamed fanboy of Big Howard and Little Howard. Um, I work with Little Howard, the world's first only six-year-old animation in traffic stand-up for the EP. Please welcome stage, Little Howard, everybody! Little Howard! <laughs> okay, this is Little Howard, the world's first only six-year-old animation traffic stand-up comedian! How's... Yes, <laughs> it's Big Howard. He's... Just a goat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, that's not... I'm not just... I'm the straight man, aren't I? Yes, don't pay any attention to what you're saying at Ricardo's Most of this half is going to be uh, an interview, um, but before we do that, I'm going to start something that I want to try and do uh, every month in these shows. So tonight we're going to talk about pretty much my my hero. George Carl was born in 1916 in Ohio. <coughs> his start in performing was working with his family, who were a group of travelling acrobats, and they worked in services throughout America. But pretty soon he found his as a clown and began to develop in his late teens the act that became his life's work. He performed in vaudeville, in cabaret, on stage and in circuses and pretty much from the start never stopped working. A conservative estimate by one of his old colleagues suggests he worked two shows a night for six nights a week for 50 years. <laughs> All that time only one 10 minute act. <coughs> over 50 years, which means by the time I first saw him when he did the Royal Variety Show in the late 70s, the act was perfect. Every move was exact, every expression was priceless, and every gag was exactly as funny as it could possibly be. In 1995, at the age of 79, he made his first and only movie, a film called Funny Bones, which also starred Jerry Lewis, Lee Evans, and in a tiny role, most of which ended up on the cutting room floor, me. Um, <laughs> it is a magical film, and he is magical, and if you haven't seen it, please do see it. Brilliant. He died on the 1st of January in the year 2000, but he's here tonight. Um, the footage you're going to watch, as you can see, is terrible quality, but hopefully they won't take away from the funny. So, I hope you enjoy what, for my money, is the funniest six minutes anyone has ever heard of. Okay, now, uh... The next gentleman has not appeared on American television since 1970, but his act was the uh, star attraction at the famous Crazy Horse Saloon in Paris for many, many years. And in 1979, he won the prestigious Golden Clown Award at Monte Carlo. I think you will enjoy him. Would you welcome George Carlo? When I started my career in the late 80s, the venue that Variety had chosen to have it was the street. Um, in, uh, in 1980, the GLC uh, redeveloped Hong Dog Market, and as part of the redevelopment from the Veg Market into Ponty Monkey Shopping Centre, they, they licensed the first, I think, the first in the country um, legal uh, and, and you know, designed street performing pitch. And in doing so, they gave a generation of performers, more than one generation of performers, a place to work, a place to learn their craft and earn a wage. 
Um, it was a very hard job. Um, I did it for the best part of 20 years, and I think it taught me pretty much everything, but it's also hard by giving difficult. Um, so we're going to bring on three people uh, that I think are amongst the best exponents of this pretty much underground art form. We're going to start, um, let's just go down the line and if you could sort of tell me and mainly them who you are. Uh, can I just say before we start, not all street attend entertainers are this size. <laughs> Inexplicable. This is not a fair representation of the He is. Can we, can we bring on Mike just to show? Yeah, yeah. Just come on. Yeah, Mike is also a street yeah, we, we made up earlier. <laughs> Um, we are street performers that done very well. <laughs> so we ate the profits. Uh, I am uh, a full-time street entertainer and cabaret performer, and uh, I first started in Covent Garden about 20 years ago. No, about that's, that's a lie. About 16 years ago, Rob was still working. Andre had finished. Matt was uh, still working at that time, and uh, now I tour a double act uh, around the world, uh, getting booked mainly to do shows, but occasionally I still do the same busking show as well, so that's what I do. Uh, I, start, uh, I think I did about 24 years as a street performer and then stopped, and we jokingly used to say to each other, if ever you stopped doing it, you'd send the friggin' postcard from Switzerland that you'd escaped it. <laughs> because everybody used to say, yeah, no, I won't be doing this next year. And we kind of all stayed in there. And some went mad, some committed suicide, and most took drugs, and most were alcoholic. <laughs> wow, you've just sold it, haven't you? <laughs> so, so what was the dream advisor. you wanted to see? What was about the art form? <laughs> um, yeah, so I did 24 years and, and then got out. Sort of. What did you used to do, Rob? Oh, I used to do night three. <laughs> well, a matter of opinion, night three. <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, I, 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 my guess is there's a lot of performers in the audience, aren't there? Hands up, hands up anyone who's a performer. Oh, come on, it's not just Pancho Villa down the front. <laughs> <laughs> That's only about okay. four people. Four people. The, okay. the I started in 1982. Uh, with a double act and then 83 went solo um, 86 moved to Canada to do the World's Fair uh, street performing and then that sort of took me around the world for four years um, and then I finished I started doing sort of inside shows with street performers in the early 90s but finished what about 94 I guess so it was about 12 years on the street and then, uh, yeah, actually I'm trying to work out, I, I shattered my knee doing a show with street performers in uh, Holland, which sort of stopped me then street performing. Really. Did they shatter your knee? <laughs> <laughs> Just get him off, hit him, hit him. <laughs> I know that, that I, the, the route that I found in street performing was a fairly simple one in that I was at college and I was a wanky student juggler. Because um, students in the 80s, yeah, students juggled in the 80s. For some reason that's the thing students did, was juggle. And by the time I'd sort of finished my course 
I decided that I didn't want to go into child psychology. Because <laughs> <laughs> even, even they hated juggling. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, so, yeah, I, I decided that I wanted to be a performer. And literally the only place that I knew that, that a juggler could perform was, was Covent Garden. I think I arrived in the late 80s at some point. Um, so what were your roots into it? How did you find it? And, and, and why did you choose it? Um, for me, I, 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 was a, a, I was a brat actor. I was a child actor. Um, I started performing when I was seven. And um, anyone, you know, locally needed a herald or a, um, you know, a young child in a show, it was me. And then um, I, I did a show that needed circus skills. And I just learned to unicycle and, and juggle and just really liked that. And at the time, that was the only place you could do it if you wanted to carry on juggling and unicycling. You, you ended up on the street, and then I, you know, me and my partner, we, we started doing it and realised that everybody was doing it, and I, I wasn't liking it, and he went off to do Barnum, and then, because that was the only other place for circus skills, and I kind of went, hold on, let's work out a new street act, and then started doing more audience participation, and the lazy route, really, and just more, <laughs> more, more clowning. And, and your, your stage name as a busker was? Yeah, Andre Vincent, I thought, was just a bit too wimpy for the street. So uh, I was known as Ari Pavarotti. <laughs> which, uh, in North America, uh, it, it was weird, because I went out and, like I said, I did the World's Fair. And it, it really worked for me. It, you know, there was this accent and, and the, you know, being called Ari as well. <laughs> and I, it, I, the Expo 86, yeah, it was like my big sort of moment. Mm. And that was it. It was, you know, the North American. They ate, they eat it up. <laughs> I remember I, when I was, when I was, before I started performing, when I was going to regular Sunday afternoon juggling workshops at Colombo Street Sports Centre. <laughs> someone, and this was in, I guess, 1986. Someone there had a copy of the American magazine Juggler's <laughs> World. Oh yes, oh yes. Exists. Exists, and you were in it. Really? Yeah, and I remember reading this review of all the street performers that were at the expo and going okay, okay and then going shit I, I think I know that one and that was when I went whoa that's you know that was the first time I sort of came to the dots that there was this fancy world that was performing somewhere exciting and I'd, and I'd, I'd seen you in Circus Senso oh my word mm. um, yes. my parents took me to see Circus Senso when I was like <laughs> 15? Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, make me feel old. That's it, yeah. Yeah, make us follow George Cole, get up here, point out with facts, and then make her up. Are you a fact? Who are you a I think that may have moved. I can do better than that for you, Andre, cause nah. <laughs> because my route into Covent Garden was uh, my parents were divorced and I used to come for weekends with my dad in London. And when I was about nine or ten, <laughs> we used to come to Covent Garden and watch the shows. And you and a couple, and a couple of other people nine I remember ten. were some of the first shows that I ever saw. So in a manner of speaking, you're responsible for it. <laughs> yes, I'm the grandfather of the industry. I created these two, ladies and gentlemen. The, the name Harry Pavarotti, which I was saying, it sort of like worked in North America. And, and like I say, I did really well there. Um, it, it sort of screwed me over once. I, I got very sort of like, 
conceited a bit, sort of like, I was doing so well at the expo. And I, I demanded a ticket for 42nd Street. I wanted to go and see 42nd Street. <laughs> and and it was very weird. It, like, people were just coming up to me constantly going, Harry, Harry, how are you? How are you? All the Canadians. Good Canadian accent. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and the, the, I got this ticket and, and it was like the... The Queen Elizabeth Theatre, and there's this sort of like strip of special seats for the special people that drop over from the circle. And as I was walking, I heard this woman go, "There's Harry Pavarotti. I must get his autograph." And I kind of went, "Oh yeah, that's, that's me. That is, that's me." And I went to get it, and she just went, "Uh, uh, uh." And this this black guy looked at me and signed it, and was like giving me a weird look. And then the interval, I was introduced to Harry Belafonte. Which was, <laughs> One of the most embarrassing moments. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. What about your book, Ian? Um, we we used uh, we started doing like comedy shows in Sheffield up at uh, Sheffield University, which had a bit of a sort of nadir at the time for that sort of thing. And then we went up to Edinburgh. And we were sort of, you know, doing stuff indoors. And on the Wireworks Playground, which used to be by the old ticket office, was Pookie Snackenberger teaming up with Cliffhanger Theatre Company. And Pookie Snackenberger, kind of like, to us they're slightly legendary, but actually to everybody else, it's Stomp. Luke Creswell turned it into Stomp, you know, took one section of their show. He used to play dustbins on Covent Garden. And unsurprisingly, there's Stomp, which is permanently on Broadway, permanently in the West End, permanently touring around uh, Europe. He's a millionaire, mm. you know, as is most of the people I used to work with. <laughs> <laughs> See, when, when uh, I'll, I'll break the ice, when Rob says we, uh, <laughs> Rob, Rob was in a double act called Official Touring yeah. with this know-nothing comic called Eddie Izzard. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Which we, we uh, and at the time, I mean, it, it was the street that sort of. You called us University Challenge, as I remember. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in many ways, we were. I don't think this is the forum to work out <laughs> old psychological issues that we've got with it. Having seen that street performing up there, we then found ourselves quite interested in coming down and seeing it on Covent Garden, and um, and then it became a viable sort of. You did that during the day, and you did sort of um, what was then alternative cabaret rather than just stand-up cabaret, where there were lots of variety acts um, of, of people doing extraordinary, mm. interesting, sort of fun things, mm. and that bills were much more varied. It wasn't like three white male stand-ups. Yeah, there was a thing uh, called cast. Yeah, yeah, past, which go. was Roland Muldoon and his wife, yeah, yeah. and and they used to have these weird little venues, and used to have some of the greatest variety acts. Mm. There was a guy called the Iceman, oh, and he man. used he used to bring a block of ice out, block of ice, block of ice, and then every show was him melting it in a different way. <laughs> They kind of had that, you know, paint drying. But, but there was something about it that you were just, people were transfixed. You were just like, and today I will just be using a fan. <laughs> a fan. And people would just be, it would, yeah. And there was the amazing Mendezes, Pookie Snackerburn and the Barneys. Yeah. It was just uh, the Millies. It was, I can it was, remember Malcolm Hardy, <laughs> who had no act. He was a legend and he was brilliant and he had no act at all, kind of thing. And he just got, oi, oi. 
I think his comedy, his comedy was, I'm going to make you all laugh with one word. He turned round, took his cock out, turned round and went, cancer. <laughs> I rest my case. And, uh, and one and night is... he had so little act that he just put on a pair of tights and, and there was a, loads of baked beans backstage at his club. And he just wrote, all right, uh, I'm not going to pour you fill these with baked beans. And I've never seen anything funnier. <laughs> Tights full of 12 cans of baked beans. And then he just tried to walk off stage. <laughs> Comedy he, and carnival. He used to compare the uh, Glastonbury comedy tent. And um, there was a, a neon juggler. And, and suddenly uh, he discovered neo, Malcolm discovered neon paint and thought it was the funniest thing to, to paint his penis in neon and then come out with, start naked just with the neon light on and just and it was very funny but, but then he decided to take a load of ketamine uh, and he collapsed and then the, the ambulance were rushing him to hospital and stripped him to discover this bright yellow testicle and big green cock and apparently through he goes no it's just pain and they were completely panicking <laughs> And, and that's what the, they were the sort of people you were dealing with. <laughs> you know, it's, it wasn't the Seinberg stand-up that you get nowadays. <laughs> Malcolm Hardy used to have a joke, which was, let's be kind of say it was shared by a, a friend of ours, a performer called Brian Reed, who wrote a lot of brilliant material. And whenever he used to get heckled in a stand-up club and someone would shout, tell us a joke, he'd go, all right, there was an Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman, and they all think you're a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Say, <laughs> you have to put a little thing on iTunes that says explicit. Really? <laughs> this, is, this is Brian Reed, the performer that, that Matt just mentioned, who is, uh, he's kind of, he's a kind of great figure among street performers. Um, he's, I guess, I don't know, sort of bordering on troubled genius, would that be? Yeah. You know, he's one of those performers that, to other performers, and to a small percentage of audience members, is like just the funniest person you've ever seen, but never really succeeded in, in the more shallow elements of performing. He used to because end... he wanted to move on to all the time. Yeah, he it was like, another idea. I've got bored with this. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't like, you know, you're saying George Cole, finding that 11 minutes and working it and yeah, working exactly. it and working it. With Brian, it was like, yeah, but what if I did this now? And what about <laughs> if I did that now? Mm. I mean, look, at, I mean, he did this thing where he'd get really upset because he couldn't do this trick. And he'd just get a gun out and he'd shoot himself. And you'd think, well, that would be it. But he, he'd built the whole thing where a bit of his skull would lift and a large piece of blood would just spurt out. And I mean, he would stand there and do it and this would happen and people were like, he's just shot himself in the head but he's still standing. And, and it, was, it was genius. And, and then he got bored with that and it was like, but you haven't discovered what was there. He used to stand there with blood pissing out of his head and go, I do children's parties. <laughs> The last time I saw him was a YouTube video where he was performing this act where he goes nunchucks sort of thing and he does these and you know you're expecting no he just picks his dummy down to the ground takes out a gun shoots it and then the camera pulls back and you realise he's performing it in Charing Cross Police Station Yard in front of a load of policemen I think that's all right to do on the street. The trouble is, for us lot, really, is that as much as we love and admire all the great street entertainers, because you get to see 
all the very eccentric acts time and time again. They are much more fun to talk about and to remember. Like when we used to sit behind the pitch, you wouldn't really want a good act on the pitch. You'd want someone that you would be compelled to watch. Do you remember yeah. Wonder Nose? Oh, Wonder Nose. <laughs> Wonder Nose was a large Rastafarian fellow who used to bounce stuff on his Wonder Nose. <laughs> That was it. That was it. That was 45-minute act. <laughs> <laughs> a succession of different items. And Absolutely. one of the things he would do is he'd get a, if a child in the audience had an ice cream cone, he'd get the cone and he'd bounce it on his nose. But he used to like a drink, and about half the time it would go wrong, and the cone would fall on the floor, which was like cobbles full of trapped piss and pigeon shit. And he wouldn't really know what to do, so he'd just pick it up and give it back to him. <laughs> He did do that great balance with a bowler hat and waistcoat and drop it. <laughs> no, no. He learned that in two weeks. <laughs> My nose is not one. So, so when you when you came to street performing, I mean, I remember when I came, I didn't. I mean, you know, I'm an idiot now, but I was an idiot then. I didn't have any plan. Can I, I tell him? Can what? I tell him that that my story of you when you were young? You see, I did better than myself. <laughs> yes, of course you can. Um, uh, we were, we, we, it was the European European yeah. Juggling Convention, and um, we were all staying in in student. There is one. Don't there is know. one. Yeah. Well, no, it's yeah. Massive. It's yeah. Massive. yeah. Yeah. And we were all staying. We were all in these student accommodations, and and Matt was in the a room next to the the, the stairwell. Uh, myself, another juggler called Alex Dandridge, and an American guy were coming downstairs, and the window was open on the stairwell, and it was <coughs> reflecting into Matt's room. And Matt was standing in front of his bed, and he was juggling five balls. And we were like watching, going, Oh, he did, did really well. And then he caught them all, and then he went, Thank you. <laughs> He then heard from the stairwell, ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> that, is, that is completely true. <laughs> I did that shit out, that's not going on for a I bet you still do it, didn't you? Thank you, Mike. But that, I mean, that kind of sums up almost what I was, what I was saying. That back then I was in my teens and I was, I was early, you know, I was, I wasn't doing massive shows, but I was in a living in either with with my parents or in a bed set. I was earning enough, you know, if you're vaguely competent as a street performer, you can earn enough. And I was so happy, and I had no plan for where this would take me. I remember talking to you, Bob, and. and and you saying to me one day, you know, what do you want to do with your career? And me, generally just going, I'm happy doing this. I want to do this forever. This is, you know. So, did you see it as a stepping stone somewhere, or was, did you feel the same way I did? It, 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 when I first started, it looked very sort of, it looked very sexy, and it looked very uh, entertaining, you know. And um, I, the Vicious Boys, who were like another act around at that time, had just kind of won a big time-out competition that they just kind of, and suddenly, you know, it looked like the thing to be doing. And so you kind of went into it um, thinking, oh, this is just a really good chance. And, and but it, it's a bit cold sacky. I'm a bit harsh about it, shaded really, uh, and. If you take the skills that you learn there and put them into something else, it's extraordinary. And and you know you you you, you know it's 
you might argue that Eddie's ability on stage to sort of just read an audience is the fact that he did 15 damn hard years of street performing and, and actually that kind of gives you a sort of second sense about uh, audiences and, and equally I took you know a lot of those skills into sort of theatre shows which you know had, had their moment and um, and I would say the skills, if you take those and put them elsewhere, you know, the, the list of honorary street performers, like people like Steve Martin and Robin Williams have all had done their sort of street performing. And you go, yeah, they've honed this sort of weird second sense. And I'm not saying, hey, that will work like that. But it's, it, it was a, it's a chance to perform on a daily basis, two or three shows a day. And nowadays that's rare to get that much stage time. You know, uh, if you're a jobbing actor, you probably, you know, you work two or three months a year and you don't get that. I'm on stage in front of them. How do mm. I hold your opinion? And and street performers are a very very harsh audience. If they don't like you, they walk off. There's a million other things to do. Um, they but that goes the other way then. That the failing yeah. that, that you can go out there with a new idea. Yeah. And, and and unless you've got to pay rent, then you've got to do your act that that you know is going to put money in the hat. But if you know if you if you like you say three or four times of shows a day, mm. you can go out there and go. Right, I've got this idea. Let mm. let's try this. And if it doesn't work, you know because there's no audience there. But but the times you know where you do kind of go, well, I'm going to do this, mm. and people stay and watch. You kind of go, that that's mm. that's what makes yeah. it that little bit special. You can't do that. You know the the times are, uh, now in stand up, um, you know you play the the nacho chains of junglers and and highlights and the, you know shit clubs like that, and, and exactly. you 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 sort of like start doing new material. And I've had the managers come up and go, well, that's not the 20 minutes we booked. Yeah. I said, well, well, I've moved on from that 20. Well, that's what we want. We know that works. Well, that's not the idea. Mm. You know, there's no, in, in comedy now, there, I really feel there's no growth. There's no opportunity. And we really had that on the street. Mm. You could take the risks and you could go out there with, with just ideas and see what happens. And I quite liked it for its sheer sort of, um, you know, I'd say almost socialist quality that here is a, a, a sort of medium that anyone can watch. Everybody's got to come by the old coming up to all, um, uh, all uh, tourists. And, you know, when they did a sort of economic survey of the place, they went, oh, my God, it's actually 76% British people, you know, from all over Britain, people coming to London, Londoners, and, and it's not just this strange tourist notion that it's all full of tourists. And it's across culture. There's, there's no, you know, there's no economics about it. If you haven't got the money, don't give any. If you have got the money, give what you like. There's no um, cultural barriers to it. There's no dress barriers. You know, if you go to a, a British, average British theatre, at the end of the day, you're looking at a sea of white, middle-class, middle-aged faces. You go to Covent Garden, you just see the rainbow that is Britain. And they're being entertained and they're understanding. And it's a form that is intelligible in a sort of universal way. And I love it for that. I just don't want to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> too many suicides, too many drugs. <laughs> this, is, this is true. We used to, um, me and, and, and Paddy Bynels, who was going to be here tonight but, but can't because he had a parent teacher meeting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, he thinks. He sent us the postcard from Switzerland. Yeah, he thinks that his kids' welfare is more important than my podcast. <laughs> We used to play a game occasionally of name someone that's worked at Covent Garden for more than a couple of years that isn't um, dead, crazy or an alcoholic. <laughs> and it's really sadly true. It, it's, I think that comes from the fact that it can be a really, as, as much as it can be a, a, it is a really <coughs> joyful way to make a living. And I, I really look back on my years as a street performer with nothing but fondness, pretty much. <coughs> you know, I have, especially for the sort of earlier days, I, I, I do have that 
classic memory of every day being sunny, every show being great, you know, <laughs> always joking backstage. Um, <laughs> but also, a lot of people see you as little more than a glorified beggar. And it can be hard. I found it often heartbreaking. But that difficult. is kind of almost specific to Comic Garden, I think. Speaking as someone who does a lot of booked street gigs and festivals elsewhere, you are afforded, especially in Europe, as Andre will tell you, yeah. and in Canada and Australia, you're afforded a lot more respect than you are over here as a street entertainer. You know, you're right, Comic Garden has a kind of <coughs> unique socialist quality to it because everything is equal, the audience is equal, the performers are equal, anyone can get a licence as long as they're not offensive, there's no quality control. Um, but the converse of that is that, you know, it's hard and maybe performers who are there can't perform anywhere else because they don't have like the ability or the kind of foresight to want to perform anywhere else. So you can't lump street entertainment all in with Covent Garden, it's a lot broader than that. I think. This is true, this is true. Um, I certainly feel that it's probably one of the best pitches on the planet. Yeah, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy. I think I'm one of the few ones that's played nearly all of them, all the big main pitches around the world. And there is, you know, you, you, you go somewhere like, you know, Pier 49 in San Francisco, and it, it, it feels, I mean, great skill. I, I said this to you the other day, I think, in, in America, North American performers, skill-wise, you know, they'll, they'll retire for the winter and they'll learn to, you know, do a freestanding ladder and come out in the summer with just more skills, while <coughs> we'd probably go away and just try and twist a balloon in a new way. And, <laughs> and I, I feel that, that there, there was something about clowning and, and character work that, that we had, that there was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a tracksuit and hey look at me I'm swish I'm, it, it, there was always a, a beginning and a middle and an end in, in most people's acts at one time and and it, it was a it was a theatrical moment while most places were just showtime showtime I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do which I know now has come into Common Garden quite a bit um, but at one time it really wasn't that I thought it was it was a, a special place um, and that is a kind of marked difference in it between cabaret sets and street shows is that you know obviously the length of a street show is greater usually it's like 45 50 minutes but for example that six minute George Carl set uh, I was talking to Andre beforehand and when he did that set in the crazy horse in Paris the first time he did it he went on and did it and stormed and they loved it uh, and the manager of the crazy horse said that was brilliant but you know that you booked for 15 minutes and he's like, well, I've only got six minutes. He's like, you're not going to get paid unless you do 15 minutes. So he thought, fuck it, and went on and did exactly the same six minutes that he'd just done with the same audience. And it's like, those variety entertainers could keep that six minutes and that would sustain them for a whole career, wouldn't it? You know, and we're talking a much more extended theatrical product, essentially. But content-wise, it's probably not much more than six minutes worth of actual action <laughs> in most street shows, is it? Yeah, but because there was, I think there's something about European performing that that there is that possibility to do other things. So I, like I say with the North American and Australian, and you know, this is my this is my 30 minutes. This is what I'm going to do. And while I, I've seen some acts on the Common Garden just go off because they're following a pigeon or and, and doing something else, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, which has been brilliant. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. When Complicite used to do the street, mm-hmm. they spent. You've come garden pitch. There's the mm. fire exit and the fire stairs. Somehow they ended up there, and the whole everybody, the whole audience moved down just to watch them on the fire escape stairs. 
Mm. And it was it was brilliant. It was just mm. beautiful. And I think that's what sort of like made it stand out in its time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was certainly on the street. Once you develop, you know, the basics of being able to hold an audience on the street, because there's no there's no club boss telling you what act you've booked. You, you know, you can do whatever you like. And I do have some fond memories of some really unique little crazy moments that we do when we got bored. I remember I was once doing that. There's, there's two performance spaces at Covent Garden. There's, there's the West Piazza, which is the big space in front of the church, and there's a smaller pitch inside under the, the market. And I was doing a show on the West Piazza by the church, and a, a wonderful clown called Peter Mjolnicek was on the inside pitch. And halfway through our shows, we just switched audiences. <laughs> just because we were bored in there. And that sort of stuff was just, let's do it because it'll be fun. Mm. You know? mm. I'm not sure that happens so much. No, you, you could, well, I don't know if it happens anymore. Mm. I certainly know when, you know, with the North American performers, they just they couldn't do that. Yeah. That's just not possible. You just don't do something like that. This mm. is, you know, you've got Gatto, you know, just chucking stuff in the air, and that's how it's going to be. Gatto chucking stuff in the air. You're referring to Anti Gatto, the world's greatest juggler. <laughs> <laughs> but, chucking stuff in the air. But yeah. It bores me senseless. Absolutely sold it's, it's, Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with all due respect to, to Gatto, you know. I've got here, what did speak before and teach you? I think for me, it. Apart from the obvious stage part of, you know, how to structure an act, how to do little and keep an audience, um, I think it teaches charisma. I think people think charisma is a thing you're born with, it's like a sort of intangible X-factor, but I don't think it is. I think that if you can walk onto a big empty piazza or a common garden and by doing very little have people notice you and go, well, something's going to happen here. I think that's learning charisma as a skill. Or is that just a learning a way of getting money out of a person's pocket? Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I, I think that that's part of it. That, that you you know you're you're cleverly you're, you're making a person kind of go, oh, this is interesting, and you know I don't know if you're learning charisma or you're just learning. This is. I think I'm learning charisma. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of us learned charisma. <laughs> some of us didn't. <laughs> I always remember um, there was a performer who maybe you might want to talk about uh, a guy called Dr. Stewart, who. But he was born with charisma. Oh man, he was amazing. Uh, for my money, Dr. Stewart was the best performer I've ever seen live in any medium. He was, in his own words, I believe he described himself as a six foot six bit of fresh funky fellow, <laughs> equally at home, mapping on the street, playing a cello. Um, <laughs> describe his act. What did he do? I mean, it, it was. Can't describe it. No, you can't. It's like there was a tape machine that with with music and sounds, and he just moved about and and, and <laughs> reacted to whatever came out of his his, his blaster. It was amazing. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen the the Sixth Sense, um, but the, the Chris Tucker character that's always walking around interviewing, sticking the microphone in uh, uh, Bruce Willis. Mm. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It was Numbers and Bruce Willis. It's uh, Four Horsemen of Apocalypse. (laughs) Ten Commandments. Seven Deadly Sins. It was that one. Ten Commandments. Yeah, that film. The the, the Fifth Element. Fifth Element element. with Chris Tucker. And there's that incredibly uh, good-looking mixed-race guy that's balding, deciding that's always doing all the... That that was Dr. Pop. Hmm? 
And in the sixth sense, he was the kid that could see people who were dead. His name is Ruby Ruby. Ruby Ruby. 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 My God, who knows this kind of thing? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dr. Smith, uh, Dr. uh, Mr. He's ill. He's Dr. Stewart Stalker over there. Dr. Stewart's still around. He he, uh, runs a poetry night now in the East End and occasionally still performs. Yeah, I recommend if you've ever seen him performing, go and see him because he is amazing. Yeah. But there were always people like that that you suddenly just watched and just go, that's just Tim Bat was somebody <coughs> I had sort of like, you know, as a kid was this, he was the first gentleman juggler that I saw. Um, it was just beautiful. This guy just walked out, you know, he just had a suit, a bowler hat, and an umbrella, and suddenly he was just doing the devil sticks with the, you know, using the umbrella, and it was just beautiful. Yeah. And and then you know, and then went into hat tricks and. And it was so smooth. Mm. And too bad he was still performing, still doing that exact act. He was at Edinburgh Festival this past That's year. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it, I mean, it's one of these things that, um, you know, in, in a sort of arts funding, we throw money at opera and we throw money at these great art forms. And actually, there's nothing English about opera at all. <laughs> Not a sausage. We don't. We have about one decent British opera that was ever written. It's all Billy German, it's all his own. <laughs> <laughs> That's a British opera. You and yet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yet, this innately British, from medieval mummers through to music yeah. hall, which was stunningly big. You know. We, you didn't have television. You went to the music hall for the night, and you went two or three times a week, and you were there for four or five hours, and you saw all these acts throughout the whole thing. And you know, the ENO Theatre was the Coliseum was not built for opera. It was built at the top of all those figures are the famous um, sort of music hall artists. That's what those statues are. That's what that place was built for. The Marx Brothers played there. Buster Keaton played there. That's our heritage. And, and you know, love opera as I obviously do. It's kind of like it's it's a heritage we've utterly disregarded. That we kind of you know, street performing in Britain is hard because people go, oh, I've got something else to do. Um, in Europe, they go, yes, this should be good. Let's watch this. This would be entertaining. <laughs> the local council has paid a fortune for them to be here. <laughs> Let's entertain it. Let's enjoy ourselves. And it's only in Britain where it's where that sort of. I, I, got job. I had some friends who, who actually got a grant, well there was a European grant to do street shows uh, right through Europe to, to sort of like clarify what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had these beautiful gypsy wagons, carts made, where the stage actually sort of slid out. And, and they were in Kosovo doing the show and they went back to the dressing room and there was a rose left on the steps and a little letter saying, thank you, what you did for us was absolutely wonderful, we love it. And they were like, and this became their emblem. It was like pressed on the front of the windscreen and everywhere they went, there was the rose. And they traveled around and they were in Liverpool and they did the show there and they walked back to the dressing room and somebody had knifed into the door, fuck off, pikey scum. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you kind of get really... So, you know, it, it, I suppose it is the attitude of, <laughs> of where you are. And, so, you know, it's, it's a sad, sad indictment of, of Britain. <laughs> Both in Britain. Both in Britain. All I want is Michael McIntyre. Um, <laughs> okay, so people that have come to see my one-man show know what, know what my best heckle was. <laughs> um, which was when a lady on Covent Garden piano did a poo in my show. <laughs> can't, can't ignore the critics. And I, and I, <laughs> uh, 
Um, you should always learn from that. Yeah. <laughs> what should I learn from that? What exactly should I learn from that? It's like I'm crazy lazy who does the toilet. Um, so, best tackles? Had a Canadian policeman pull a gun on me. <laughs> which was very, very sort of weird. Like I was really totally taking the piss out of him as I was doing the show. And everyone was like, oh man, oh, you know, uh, it was in, in Edmonton. <laughs> And he suddenly just got his gun out, and I was just like, "Whoa, what do I do here?" And I walked over really slowly, and then just slid a breadstick down the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just a real moment of, uh, you know, that whole cold sweat of. Whoa! I don't know what to do. You know that breadstick wouldn't have stopped a bullet. No, I know. <laughs> But it would have made it tasty. <laughs> I think on that note we might wrap it up. Mm, um, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. One more time, mm, Mr. Andre Vincent, Mr. Rob <laughs> And that's about it for this month. Before I go, I'd like to say a few thank yous. Thanks to Kirsty at Sounds Wild. Thanks to the British Comedy Guide. To East End Cabaret for the jingles, and of course everyone at the brilliant Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. We will return on Thursday the 8th of March with the incredible juggler and yo-yoist Aaron Sparks, the astonishing Twilight players, the legendary Frisky and Manish, and live on stage in conversation, comedy writer Graham Linehan. Graham has written The IT Crowd, Father Ted, Big Train. He's had a hand in pretty much every great piece of British TV comedy from the last couple of decades and I can't wait to chat to him live on stage. If you did enjoy the podcast, you can do a couple of things for me. You can go to iTunes and subscribe and you can leave a review because it really helps the rankings if you do that. But of course, what you're going to really want to do is come and see the show live because variety is best when it's before your very eyes. So, get yourself down to the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club at 7pm on Thursday the 8th of March we'll love to see you you can follow me on Twitter to find out details of upcoming shows but for now ladies and gentlemen thank you for coming my name is Matt Ricardo and that was your London Varieties Matt Ricardo's London Varieties yeah.